Hi guys, welcome to Uncomfortable. The goal here is to have honest conversations about the issues dividing America. And great news for you listeners, all of our episodes are now available on the TuneIn app. All the episodes available there five days early. So download the TuneIn app and listen for free. I'm really pleased today to introduce you to our guest here in studio, all the way from Michigan. Feru Saad is here with us. She's a candidate for the 11th Congressional District seat in Michigan in 2018. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So uh, let's talk about your candidacy, first of all. There's a little bit of history tied to it. Mm -hmm. Because if you win, you will be the very first female Muslim to serve in the House of Representatives. Is that right? That's right. I'm sure that informs your candidacy in all kinds of ways, and I want to talk about that Mm -hmm. as we go on. But one of the things we like to do here is try to understand where people are coming from, Mm -hmm. why they make the decisions they do, why they believe what they do. So tell me the story of you. Yeah, you know, I say quite simply that I'm the product of the American dream, and that's my story. My parents came here from Lebanon over 40 years ago in search of that American dream. They found it in Michigan. My dad started a small meat wholesale business in Detroit's Eastern Market Mm -hmm. that grew and flourished, and they found success here. And I watched them be successful. I watched them integrate into America, raise six children. I'm one of six. And Where are you in the lineup? I'm in the yeah. middle. Okay. And sometimes people say, oh, you don't seem like a middle child. And I'm like, I'm running for Congress. Does anything else say, hey, look at me? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, but nevertheless, you know, my parents were wonderful to all of us mm-hmm. and Each one of us had our own opportunities and, you know, they they pushed us into the direction to go to college and to be successful, but to choose the path that was best for us. Mm -hmm. And for me, they really inspired me and seeing the success that they were able to have, I entered into a career in public service because of that. And, And there was a lot of things that went into that decision, everything from... My uh, post 9-11 experience, I I was uh, a freshman in college Mm -hmm. on 9-11. And that day, my parents, not knowing exactly what was going on, of course, like like the rest of us, they came, they picked me up from campus. I was the first of of my six siblings to, quote unquote, go away for college, which really meant I was only a half hour away, but I was living on campus. So Mm -hmm. that was a big deal for our family. Um, But they took me home. And up until that day, I had no idea, actually, that Muslims were regarded in this light. Right. And or or Arabs, for that matter. And so that was eye-opening but what was even more profound for me was that when I returned to campus a few days later, I found my roommates and my classmates and some others who were there waiting for me, and they all welcomed me back. And it was such a touching moment because a few said, like, look, we're here for you. Let us know if you have any problems on campus, and we're in this together. And yeah, it was a really moving experience. And and when I think back to it, it, every day that that goes on, it 
it's even more touching. The emotions of that day don't ever leave me. It's also very different from a lot of other young Muslim mm-hmm. Americans post 9-11 experience, right? Because mm-hmm. we've all got those stories, too. Yeah. But I want to I hear more about your family and where you grew up, because you mentioned you're, you're first-generation American. Mm-hmm. And um, the community in which you grew up, were you mostly surrounded with people like you? Was it a very diverse environment? Like, how, What was that like growing up? It was a diverse environment, but I did grow up in a city that had a large concentration of Arab Americans. So I had the opportunity to feel like I was part of a community. You know, I never felt necessarily out of place based off of my name or religion or ethnicity or the way I looked, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. But at the same time, had friends who came from all different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And so it was a really great way to grow up. And hence why I think that moment on 9-11 was so shocking to me because I grew up in a place in which we were all the same. You know, we had these slight differences, but nevertheless, we were the same. Mm -hmm. And uh, but it was cool because I got to grow up really diving into my culture, you know, I I learned to speak Arabic growing up, but then, of course, English is my first language. You know, I went to um, public schools Mm -hmm. and had friends who had the same environment as me back home or different environment. And then when they came over, they, you know, got to eat my mom's food and they were so excited about that. And um, I really thought that this is what the rest of America was like. And it was... Sounds like there's an until after that. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> when did that change? College college is always a changing experience sure. for any anyone growing up, mm-hmm. right? And, so, and you went to a really big school. You went to the University of Michigan, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. And, and it's a liberal college as yeah. well. So, so it's not to say that... I suddenly felt like an outsider by any means because there the campus was even more diverse and more rich than what I had grown up with. Mm-hmm. But I suddenly was exposed to a whole new world, it felt like, of people who were coming from all over the country, all over the world, who hadn't necessarily been exposed to someone like me. Mm-hmm. So that was interesting. And it it allowed me actually to appreciate my identity even more because I got a chance to tell people what it means to be Arab American, what I mean when I say I'm Muslim, what that means in terms of practice, what it doesn't mean, and really allowed me the opportunity to help break down stereotypes for people Mm -hmm. and help answer questions and really be a representative of my community. It's funny because it's almost like you find yourself in the same position now. Mm -hmm. Because when I looked at the video that you released announcing your candidacy, Mm -hmm. you started it kind of with a joke. You were like, this is my name. Mm -hmm. And but you, you may not recognize me by this name. You might recognize me from these names. And you went through all your Starbucks names. Uh-huh. It was like the many ways in which your name has been butchered by a barista. Um, my Starbucks name is Anna, by the way. Okay. It's just It's just easier. I get it. But you, you're speaking to people outside of your community to some degree, right? Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about that. Like, who, who are you trying to convince to vote for you in this 11th district? So I think a p- what... 
really motivates me to want to run for office to begin with is that I believe I could be a representative for all people, that I can be someone who represents progressive values. And no matter who you are, whether you you come from the same background as me in terms of ethnicity or religion, or maybe even we you went to the University of Michigan and there's a lot of pride there where, where I'm from, um, or or not, or you have a completely different background, or you grew up in a completely different environment, or you've never met an Arab and Muslim in, in your life mm-hmm. and, you know, only had a certain type of career, that I still believe that I can represent you. And so, you know, what um, with the video, what I was, I think, specifically trying to accomplish and be like, hey, this is my name. You may not have ever heard it before. Who hasn't Starbucks messed up their name on the cup in one (laughs) shape or form? But there's all these other things about me as well that – Give me have have driven my experiences in life, mm-hmm. and make me want to fight for all our values. That district, the eleventh, though this is um, so it's been held by a Republican, mm-hmm. right? Um, for the last two elections, mm-hmm. the I just looked at a picture because as I was researching, mm-hmm. districts fascinate me. First, so yeah. I'm going to hold this up. So if you're watching on the video, you can see this. This is just crazy. One. I mean, what mm-hmm. is this shape even? I don't know what that is. It's like a puzzle piece. Like. <laughs> so who lives here, though? Like, who is it you're trying to appeal to? And how, what are the demographics? What are you doing? What's the messaging to get to these folks? So I believe, so I hold true to myself as a progressive candidate and mm-hmm. the progressive values that drive me. And I believe that there is a need for that in that district, then there's people who are looking for a candidate that wants to talk about issues, everything from universal health care to protecting our environment to other issues like how to promote our small businesses, which is very important to me given the the background that I come with and really understanding the strength of our small businesses and how they're the backbone of our economy, mm-hmm. especially in a place like Michigan. So I... I want to really take these values that I believe the people want to hear more about and speak to them in a way that bring all people into my campaign, really, and and into my message and, and hopefully to the polls to vote for me. Because I have had this wealth of experience in my career Mm -hmm. in which everything that I've done has been driven by that communication and that relationship with the people that I'm serving, whether it was in state legislature or under the Obama administration or most recently for Mayor Mike Duggan, Mm -hmm. and really taking the time to understand what people want and then implementing it into programs or policies. And so that's what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to say to the people of the 11th district that like we align on a lot of common values and we need to talk about them and I want to understand more about what you all believe in and what you need to see an elected leader and let me tell you why I can help make things happen for you as your representative in Washington because I'm going to work with you and I'm going to work for you. You mentioned all your years in service. Mm-hmm. You've, you've spent a lot of time in government, 
uh, on the local level, on, on the state level, rather, on the federal level, or government adjacent. I mean, on paper, you're like this pristine candidate, right? You have a bachelor's from Michigan, you have a master's from Harvard, from Kennedy School, no big deal. You worked for the Kerry campaign in Michigan state politics. You were appointed by President Obama for a DHS post, mm-hmm. right, at the Department of Homeland Security. And then you went back to Michigan to fill the role that had basically been created for you, right, in the mayor's office as the director of the Office of Immigrant Affairs. Yeah. Tell me about that. Why was that job even necessary in the mayor's office? So it was so cool. (laughs) I mean, first of all, that doesn't exactly answer your question, but it was so cool to be able to have this opportunity to do this work. And the mayor had been really interested in finding in, in creating this position and having this office and having this role because he believes in immigration as a key element of revitalization and economic development mm-hmm. for any urban area and certainly for the city of Detroit. And so I often tell people I wasn't doing immigrant affairs, I was doing economic development because we were working with immigrant communities to integrate them into government programs and services that just enabled economic prosperity and economic growth. Mm -hmm. So it was everything like connecting them to programs that promoted small businesses to help expand small businesses, promote entrepreneurship, to promoting homeownership. And everything from making those direct connects at a high level to understanding what the barriers and some of the most basic challenges were or are and and trying to kind of get past them and remove them. Mm -hmm. Now, in a city like Detroit that has a a lot, you know, a a lot of potential and a lot of things that – you know, it will take to kind of really help it meet its full potential. You know, we we really need to work with the people of the city to to help them help Detroit achieve its potential. And part of that was working with the immigrant communities in the city. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the metro Detroit area as well, where the immigrant community has been so vibrant and so robust and so much a part of its economy. You know, I really wanted to, you know, help Detroit be part of that as well. In a city where the population is, it, I, I hope I get this right, is it 80 percent African-American? Yeah. In Detroit proper. Mm-hmm. Was there any sense of like backlash against having a role like this? Because there are already so many people there that could use economic investment mm-hmm. and the same kind of care and attention from the mayor's office rather than focusing on people who have more recently arrived. Mm-hmm. So. No, but because no, there was we no took, well, because we took the time to work with the other communities mm-hmm. to help them make sure that they knew what we were doing. So just government transparency, right? So in and of itself, um, you know, maybe before I got to the people, people, you know, may have felt a certain way. Maybe if we hadn't taken the time, who knows what the reaction would have been. Mm-hmm. However, because we took the time to make sure the the leaders of different communities knew what we were doing, everything from refugee resettlement to economic development programs. We met with faith leaders. We met with neighborhood organizations that we were working directly within 
to, again, let them know exactly what we were working on, what it meant for them. We weren't necessarily creating any additional incentives or programs just to meet the needs of immigrant communities. Mm-hmm. We were just taking what already existed and helping and help to ensure that people had access to these programs. So once we were able to effectively communicate that and build those relationships with other communities across the city as well, there was a lot of openness and welcomeness to what we were doing. Your chances um, for election got a lot better mm-hmm. recently. Dave Trott, who has held the seat, recently announced he's not going to run for re-election. You have a, a Democratic primary opponent, mm-hmm. right? And that primary is in August. August. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is your comparative advantage? How are you going to win this? So I believe really strongly in the grassroots mm-hmm. and a grassroots movement. I think that that is why Dave Trott isn't running for re-election. I think the activists got to him because there has been such an invigorated grassroots movement in the 11th district. Mm. Everything from indivisible groups to fam groups that have organized and are protesting at his office like weekly at least. What are they protesting? What are the things that get them out? Everything from health care, from his decision earlier in the year to vote to repeal the ACA, mm-hmm. to um, the, the DACA decision, mm-hmm. really. And so it's everything that, that they believe that he stands for that they stand against. And so the activist movement in this district has been quite inspiring Mm -hmm. because people are really making sure that they're holding their elected officials accountable. And and Dave Trout was part of that movement. And there was like weekly actions, like call his office and protest this, go to his office and do this. And it was organized. Mm -hmm. And that's what was so impressive. So I say that just to say, to emphasize that grassroots make a big difference in every election and in every movement. And for me, that is where I believe I am so strong is really understanding how to get to the grassroots, what a what a field strategy needs to look look like. How do you get in front of voters? How do you get in front of the people? Get your message out there. Allow people the opportunity to ask questions as well and provide you with feedback. So I do everything from going to house parties in the district to ensuring that my social media platforms are engaging. So I do something called a Facebook Feedback Fridays, like every other Friday, okay, in which it's just like an open forum, like, hey, ask me any question you, you want. You just show up on Facebook Live and you take questions? And Well, it's not live, okay. so it's through posting. So okay. people are um, so people are posting their questions and I'm answering them. What kind of questions do you get? God, everything from, again, everything from healthcare to where do you stand on climate to how do you feel about student debt to... You know, what how, What do you think about the gig economy? I mean, everything. And so it was really cool to watch, too, the type of questions that people came in with because it just shows that people are really paying attention. They want to talk about the issues. Mm-hmm. They want to see how people feel. They want – before they send their next representative to Congress and to Washington, they really want to make sure that that person knows what they're talking about and aligns with them. Politics is so weird in so many mm-hmm. ways because, well, I was just reading about how the way some of the anger had manifested itself 
Um, and part of the criticism against Mr. Trot was that he stopped showing up to mm-hmm. maybe because he didn't want to face some of those activists. But there was one story I was reading about how he was absent from a town hall. And this is from the news report. Angry constituents brought a live chicken Mm -hmm. to sit in his place to exemplify their feelings on how difficult it had been to reach him on issues important to them, which is just the weirdest thing ever, but very effective. But it leads me to this, which is how how do you plan to do things differently? I mean, the Facebook forum seemed to be one part of it. Mm -hmm. But what do you think is different about you and what you bring to the table? Well, first and foremost, the... In, again, any position that I have ever done in public service has been through working directly with the people. And so I understand the need for that engagement. And uh, and that is and that is something, frankly, that I, I want to do because I really love interacting with the people. It's my favorite part of any job. And so I think very front and center is hold more regular town halls and office hours and coffee hours and ensure that your constituents feel like they have a pathway of communication to you. Mm -hmm. And so that is definitely one thing I would do differently. Um, And furthermore, you know, I believe a big piece of that is developing that relationship with the constituents and with the people that you serve and really having that to help inform the decisions that you're making in Washington. And when I talk about my experience having worked at the state, local, and federal level, the other than, yes, it was great experience and I'm very fortunate, but what it really taught me was, one, how legislation comes together. Mm How decisions are made, you know, in big bureaucracies and in federal government. And then what happens when all of the how all of those things come together on the ground, how it's actually affecting people on a day to day on on a day to day basis. Mm -hmm. And so. Wanting to take that to Washington. So, you know, when when you're voting on bills, when you're talking about legislation, when you're crafting legislation, you're also thinking about how is this actually going to affect people in their homes on the ground. At the same time, especially on the federal level, right, Mm -hmm. because we're talking about it on the national level now, there is – there's basically a culture war to Mm -hmm. a large degree, especially surrounding the way we talk about politics. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, you know, you've got the facts, you've got the experience. There was this wonderful quote from a previous report that I'm going to I'm going to butcher right now, but it gets mm-hmm. the idea of this, which is if you, we, you're bringing facts to a culture war is like bringing a knife to a gunfight, mm-hmm. which is to say there's a lot of people who are fighting for something sort of intangible, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I wonder how you appeal to them. What's your messaging to those folks who say, I don't care how good you look on paper. Mm-hmm. I want someone who's going to go and raise hell or fight or support my president or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. How do you talk to them? Well, y- you you got to make it tangible, right? And so you, you know, got to work. And that's part of having that relationship is helping, is really talking to people and understand what it means for them. So, for example, why I say I wasn't doing immigrant affairs, I was doing economic development because a big part of what we did is that we took this issue of immigration and immigrant affairs and we made it an economic issue. We showed people that this is what immigration means. This is how it's affected our GDP. This is how many – this is the percentage of the population of immigrants or entrepreneurs. This is their contribution mm-hmm. to the economy, right? And making it real, real for people 
in that regards. Like this is how it's affecting your life, very plain and simply. Um, how much has your identity, because you also live at this intersection of a lot of different identities that have come into the headlines over the last year and a half, right? Like oh, you're a woman, you're a visible minority, you're Muslim. Um, how has that played into the campaign so far, or has it not? I mean, I'm sure, has, has it come up? Is that, <laughs> is that a silly question? <laughs> no, it's not a silly question at all. I mean, it, like, my my identity is very much part of who I am, right? right? So there there isn't a day in which I forget, you know, who I am, like where I come from. Any day I have to say my name, first of all, you know, it's a constant reminder, if, if nothing else. And so I think... I think for me, it just reemphasizes why you. I bring a unique experience through everything, through not just the work I've done, but the way I was raised and how my identity has kind of played a part in the the roles that I've played in terms of my career, and feeling like I. Um, I have a, based off these experiences, I can help inform things in a way that others won't be able to. So, for example, you know, being, um, you know, being a woman, understanding what that means, what type of experiences women have in the workforce when they are in maybe male-dominated fields, the Mm -hmm. type of challenges that we face every day. I was a woman working in national security. Oftentimes I was the only woman in the room or the only minority in the room or, you know, something. And, you know, being able to speak on with those experiences and understanding what women are facing every day, the challenges we're facing every day, and then the way that plays into legislation. It's everything from just being a voice at the table and saying that this is why we need to fight for affordable child care because mm-hmm. this is why more women aren't in those rooms because sometimes they're forced to make those decisions between careers and, and you know, paying for their ch- children's child care. So – I think it's it all just plays a role in understanding what are the challenges that people are facing based off of a number of different backgrounds that they might come from, whether it's gender, whether it's ethnicity, whether it's race or mm-hmm. religion or just, you know, socioeconomic status or the neighborhood they grew up in or the the type of um, role their parents played in their life. So why run for office mm-hmm. to exact that kind of change? Because you you been in so many different agencies you could you could kind of implement that in different ways in different roles why run for office why go to washington to do that because those um are elected representatives uh really at all levels of government but especially at washington have a huge impact that they're playing in our everyday lives Everything from the decisions they're making on what goes into legislation to how they vote on legislation to the the role that they're playing in informing the narrative. And we need to send more people in Washington who bring diverse opinions, who come from diverse backgrounds, everything from diverse career backgrounds to their their background and identity and and bringing those diverse experiences as well. Mm -hmm. Because if we're going to have a representative democracy and a representative government, then those we 
those have to be the elected leaders as well, right? They they also our elected leaders should also look, act, and sound like us. During the this past election, um, you were supporting Hillary Clinton, right? Mm-hmm. You were running an, um, an initiative or involved in an initiative called Arab Americans for Hillary. Mm-hmm. There was an article in which you were quoted, and people would ask, you know, this was before the election, and someone asked you about what it would look like for the Arab American community under a Trump presidency. Mm-hmm. And I think your quote at the time was something like, we're not even thinking about that right now. And I, I literally think you said, I can't even imagine that right mm-hmm. now. And now you are living it. Mm-hmm. So I wonder how it's going. It's hard, but it is also what pushes me every single day. What do you mean by that? It be, it's a constant reminder of why I have to do what I'm doing because it, I, I need to fight back. I need to be part of those of us that are fighting back. And for me, I found the the best way for me to do that, the most impact that I could have was by running for office in hopes that I can be an elected representative in Congress and fight for the values that I believe we all believe in. Um, And every single day that goes by and something is said or something happens, I'm reminded of why I'm doing this because it's hard. When you, if you win, Mm -hmm. you, and you go to Washington, uh, you would basically be serving in Congress under President Trump. Mm Mm-hmm working with President Trump, I should say. Mm -hmm. So how would you plan on positioning yourself? Because it's, you know, people have kind of staked out all different parts of the landscape, right? Like firmly in the opposition, pragmatically trying to find bipartisan issues to work together on. Uh, Where would you be? How would you position yourself there? I think I, no matter what, I want to be for progress and I want to be for change, right? And I want to be for finding solutions And a a lot of that will be determined by what the environment looks like when I get there as well. And, you know, also motivated by what the constituents are telling me they want as well. So what, you know, what are the issues that they're they're sending me to Washington to really fight for and ensure that I'm there to help fight for those issues? And so, but at the end of the day, I want to go because I want to impact change and I want to see progress in our government. And I, I will add, I remember right after Election Day, I, uh, I was there, there was another interview in which I was asked if I was fearful. And I said that I wasn't because I believed in the democratic process. And I was reaffirmed in that earlier this year when you saw democracy really kick in at its finest in terms of just how the judicial branch and the legislative branch and then, of course, the executive branch were really all just offsetting one another, right? And acting as checks and balances. Exactly, exactly, which was the exact intention, you know, set forth by our Constitution. And so that is why it's important to be in Congress, because you act as that check, and balance. And, I, you know, I, I really think we need more checks and balances right now. It strikes mm-hmm. me that as we're having this conversation as two brown Muslim women in a room, which <laughs> by all accounts would freak a lot of people out. But, it, you know, you talk about the diversity of America and the changing demographics of America. Those same facts and figures 
are very unsettling to mm-hmm. a lot of people mm-hmm. because they're unfamiliar or scary or fear-inducing for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And we can put that to the side. But, you know, when you bump up against that now, how do you, occupying the space and role that you do mm-hmm. in this country, how do you address that? Because it's surely going to come up. You're, this, you're early in this campaign. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to address more overtly a lot of things. How do you address that? In terms of... When people come to you and say that, I don't know that I can trust a Muslim to represent me in Congress. I, you know, I don't know anything about your family. I have never been to Dearborn. Mm -hmm. I, the only thing I ever hear about your faith is that I I should be scared of people Mm -hmm. who ascribe to it. Mm -hmm. How do you confront that? Let me tell you about myself. Let me tell you my story. Let me tell you why we're alike and not different. And one of the most surprising statistics to me is that I think it's about 62 or 63 percent of Americans say that they've never met a Muslim. So right there for me tells me why people might think that or might feel that way because they might they've never met a Muslim. And so this is my opportunity then to help them meet one and and see that there's nothing to be afraid of and that we all are we have so much more in common than we do different i wonder sometimes if mm-hmm. people hold that to be true or not um we have to keep saying it though and i think we i, I just really believe that i got to keep pushing and i have to keep telling my story telling the story of others you know, really kind of hitting home why you know, my my story is unique to me. Everyone has their own unique experience, but it's not unique to America. And that is really what brings us all together is this belief in the American dream. And so I just it's it's really just finding those commonalities. In another interview, when you talked about why you decided to run, you said that you'd seen a void in Congress of representative faces and mm-hmm. experiences mm-hmm. to inform some of the decisions being made there, specifically younger minority faces. Mm-hmm. And I guess this is something that's been debated a lot, but I'm curious to get your take for all the demographic changes in our country, for all the many ways in which we are different now than we were 25 years ago. Why is it still so hard for young minority Americans to break in to those roles in particular? Is it the institutions keeping them out or is it a lack of interest in getting in? I'll say, well, so what I'm finding right now is is what I already knew, but not to the degree until I started, like running for Congress is hard. And it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of resources. And it is really hard. And so I think that that is a barrier that's in place for a lot of people, mm-hmm. you know, women, minorities, certainly, and, and people from immigrant communities. And... And then there um, aren't a lot of institutional things in place to help break down those barriers. So I would say that's probably the biggest reason. Now, in terms of whether it's a lack of interest, I think that that's changing as well. And we're seeing that communities of color are more engaged 
than they ever have been, at, at least the communities that I've worked with. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll give you an example. In 2004, when I was working on the John Kerry campaign, and I was a field organizer, but I was also doing Arab American outreach for the campaign. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there there was engagement by the community, but there was a lot of resistance as well. There, it, it wasn't necessarily always easy to go to a community leader or a faith-based institution, a mosque, to try and hold even a voter registration drive. <clears throat> Why and, wasn't that easy? There was just a, a, a bit of a lack of interest, um, a bit of apathy, mm-hmm. I would say, amongst the community. It's not to say that it was across the board, but it did exist. Mm-hmm. In 2016, we were holding candidate forums in the mosques. So just to show you, in 14 years, we've come a long way, and the community is definitely engaged, and they're definitely paying attention. There's always more work to do. And I I have worked as a grassroots organizer in these communities to help register voters and get people out to vote and engage them and educate them on their voting rights and, and who and what is going to be on the ballot. And now I think it's important that we're also part part of the system and, and part of the institution and, and part of Congress. Does it weigh on you at all what's at stake, that if you were to win, what it would mean for a lot of people out there who would look at you and say, oh, well, if she could do it, maybe that means that I could do it too, to, to be potentially the first woman Muslim to serve in Congress. Does that weigh on you at all? It inspires me, and I'm certainly up for the challenge. That's as good an answer as you could give. Yeah. <laughs> Farouz Saad, uh, candidate for Michigan's 11th district congressional seat. Uh, thanks for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Uncomfortable. Each of our episodes is now available on the TuneIn app. TuneIn is a free mobile audio app available across iOS, Android, and Windows. Download it for free today and listen to the latest episodes of Uncomfortable five days before they're released. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and at abcnews.com. And if you like what we're doing, take a minute, leave us a rating and a quick review. It helps others to find these conversations, and we really just want to hear what you think. Plus, we have made it easy. Just click on the link in the description of this episode. And if you have an idea for a show topic or a guest, leave it in the reviews. Or you can tweet at me, at Navazistan. That's N-A-W-A-Z-I-S-T-A-N. Or use our hashtag, Uncomfortable Talk. Uncomfortable is a product of ABC News. New episodes post every two weeks on Tuesday mornings. And don't forget, episodes are released five days early on the TuneIn app. I'm Amna Navaz. Thanks for listening.